wa ura to ao te kōwhai. The kindling of the kōwhai blazes. Henei mi o te motu nau mai hoki mai ki te hotaka nei a te ahikā. I'm Mariah Rakaraku. And I'm Justine Murray and you're with Te Ahikā on Radio New Zealand National. Continuing last week's coverage of the hikoi protesting at the foreshore and seabed Takutai Moana legislation, we'll hear today from Te Taitunga MP Rahui Katini. The Crown now has the burden of proof, so it has to prove that Māori no longer has exclusive use and occupation of the Takutai Moana, which uh, was, is a complete turnaround from the 2004 Act, because in that Act Māori had to prove that we've kept it, that, you did, that the Crown didn't take it off us, that um, we didn't lose it in some other way. So now that burden of proof is where it belongs, on the ones who are asserting, no, you no longer have exclusive use and occupation. Our, I mean the nationwide ukulele fixation doesn't seem to be dissipating anytime soon, helped along with a recent meeting Justine had with a visiting Hawaiian crew. There was no ukuleles before um, when the guitars and these other types of instruments were introduced to Hawaii. Um, a couple of local guys looked at it and they wanted it a little smaller, a little more compact and they actually created this instrument in Hawaii. Hawaiian ukulele virtuosos mana Māori join us later. The saying goes that it takes a village to raise a child. If a child grows to be a good citizen, the village takes credit, right? The same goes for the iwi or the whānau. What if a child doesn't grow up in this way? Is that the responsibility of the iwi or whānau as well? Ngāti kahununu ki wairarapa thinks so. Nā reire e te iwi, koe rāna kaupapa mo te haora e haere ake nei. That's what's coming up in this edition of Te Ahikā. Bōla sarain tu Te Ahikā, Radio National. It was a wet, miserable day when the protest hikoi against the foreshore and seabed Takutai Moana Act hit Wellington. Standing on the steps of Parliament to receive them were a range of Māori politicians, including MPs from the Māori Party. They were the particular target for the protesters' anger and disappointment. Now, last week on Te Ahikā, we heard from those protesting against the Takutai Moana foreshore and seabed bill on the hikoi te Parimata. This week it's the turn of the Māori Party who, in supporting the bill, the Act, have been accused of betraying Māori. Rahui Kātine, MP for Te Taitonga, do you feel like you've betrayed Māori? No, not at all. In fact, I'm very happy that we've managed to keep our promise and to repeal the 2004 Act. You know, I think people really have forgotten how bad that act is. And for people to say, let's keep it and keep the long, have the long conversation, are really uh, not understanding what it, a law is and what will happen if we keep it. And I don't see it as a betrayal at all. I see it as keeping our promise. Sarahui, could you... Like present what are the differences between the 2004 legislation and the 2011 Moana Takutai Bill? Yes, of course. And there are so many differences that I probably won't manage to get all of them in. But the main thing is that the 2004 Act actually took away the right of Māori to go to court to prove their customary title in the Takutai Moana. Under the 2011 Act, Māori now have the right to go to court and to prove title. Uh, under the um, 2004 Act, 
um, it was really restrictive on what customary rights are. In the 2011 Act, uh, customary rights have been opened up quite broadly now. Not as broad as we'd like, but they are quite broadly interpreted now. Uh, the other sorts of differences is that um, is when we look at the customary tests, the tests for proving that we still have customary title, those have been made um, a lot um, lower than they were, are under the two. Like the threshold. Yes, the threshold is a lot lower. For criteria under the two thousand from under the two thousand four act. In the two thousand four act, you had to prove both both continuous and contiguous um, use and occupation. That means that not only did you have to prove that you had use and occupation of the tuck of time owner, but you also had to prove that you had, you know, basically ownership of the the, the beach and and the land next to the beach. And that was a very onerous test to prove because if you had, you know, if you had your land taken away by Raupatu, then of course you couldn't prove that you still had the Taka Taimwana. Um, under the 2011 Act, you can still prove that, even if the, the land um, next to the Taka Taimwana has been taken away in some sort of way or it's been sold or whatever, you can still uh, able to prove that you have kept ownership of the Taka Taimwana. Uh, those those are some of the big ones. The other big one too is that um, the Crown now has the burden of proof. So it has to prove that Māori no longer has exclusive use and occupation of the Takutaimwana, which uh, was is a complete turnaround from the 2004 Act because in that Act Māori had to prove that we've kept it, that, you did, that the Crown didn't take it off us, that um, we didn't lose it in some other way. So now that burden of proof is where it belongs on the ones who are asserting, no, you no longer have exclusive use and occupation. The other big thing is that the 2011 Act actually brings in the concept of tikanga, which is not under the 2004 Act. So, you know, you might be able to, um, to say, to prove that even though um, people have come and used the takutai, that um, that was at our request, at our um, invitation, that sort of thing. And that is a proof of manaakitanga. Uh, so, you know, although um, other people have been using it because it was at our invitation, because we allowed that to happen, that doesn't mean that we didn't still have exclusive use and occupation of it. Um, and also it allows for the concept of shared exclusivity. So if you've got two hapu that are sharing the takutamuana, that doesn't mean that one is doing, you know, that... that um, you don't have exclusive use and occupation anymore. Uh, so, you know, these are just some of the improvements on the Act, uh, on the 2004 Act. So from a Māori Party point of view then, the hikoi that came to Parliament last Tuesday, I mean, what you've just described sounds very um, straightforward, uh, very fair. So... It still led to protests by Māori. Yeah, and I think that it's um, a real pity that so many people haven't actually read the Act themselves, haven't thought about it for themselves, but are just sort of following the leader. A lot of people also are doing it because they don't believe in the legitimacy of Parliament, of course, and so they will never um, 
agree with what Parliament has done and they don't agree with the Māori Party being part of Parliament. But we've chosen to, to do that uh, that way and um, for them to stand outside and do it their way, that's fine too. It's it's a matter of choices and a matter of making sure that we got all bases covered and not just doing it in one way. Let's do whatever works the best uh, is, is the main thing. But the, I think... The other thing is that people really do misunderstand what this Act does, and a lot of people just thought that what was going to happen was that ownership was going to be handed over by Parliament uh, to uh, Iwi and Hapu, and that was going to be the end of it. But, I mean, that was, that was a great thought. I wish it could happen that way. The time is not right yet to do it that way. So at this stage, it's still a matter of whānau hapu iwi having to go to, either to court or to the government to prove that they still hold that. So that was restored. You know, we're heading into a second recession. Our people are at the bottom of the ladder. You know, the ambulance is coming. Realistically, I mean, that's sure, sure, that's been restored, that's an option, but, you know, realistically, our people don't have that as an option because of the money that it requires, the time that it requires. Well, yeah, that is one way of looking at it. The other way is if we really are concerned about our takutai, we will do everything that we can to show that we do retain ownership uh, and um, this is one way of doing it. The money um, aspect is it, it is a huge barrier. But, of course, there is always the, um, the, the government's money. You know, the, It's not legal aid, but it is a form of legal aid that people can uh, claim to be able to take their claims either through negotiations or to court. So there is money there to, to um, follow that option. And the thing that um, I find is, you know, we're always... This is no difference from what we've had before. We're no worse off. Um, and we are a, a little bit better off under this. So, yeah, it's it would be nice if we could get ownership turned over to us without having to prove it, without having to take any more steps, but uh, that is not a reality at this stage of the game anyway. Do you think that this situation has created the next generation's Treaty of Waitangi claims? I mean, just this morning, Kingi Tairua was reported as saying that he's taking it to Waitangi. He's going to be protesting about the bill, about the act to Waitangi. Right. I, well, people can uh, see if there is a breach, um, but as far as I'm concerned, you know, if you look at what the UN rapporteur said about the 2004 Act, how it is a breach um, and uh, is very unfair to Māori, and then what the, the latest UN rapporteur has said about the, uh, what is going on with the 2011 Act. At that stage, it was still a bill and was still being discussed, but he saw that huge strides forward were being taken, and he was pleased that um, the country is moving forward in that aspect. So, uh, you know, we can, we can look at it that way. We can look at it as um, we haven't got everything that we wanted um, let's take it to the Waitangi Tribunal. And, and, and people have that option to do that if they want to. But for me, we have made steps forward and I understand that there are a lot of iwi that are actually lining up to put their claims in now already. There are some suggestions that it's a class issue, Rahui, that you've got the educated class who are 
uh, happier because they understand the processes. And then you've got maybe more of the whānau from te haukainga who may not have had as much of the opportunity as an educated class who are on the ground and they don't understand those processes. I think it's not a class matter. I think it's a matter of coming along to the hui and listening to all sides of the situation and then making up your mind because um, all of the Māori Party went out, um, have been going out amongst our whānau, amongst our electorates over the last few months uh, discussing this with, uh, our, with the people, not just Māori Party but open hui so that everybody had an opportunity so to come along. to the Māori Party membership. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, they were public hui for uh, whānau hapuiwi and um, anyone else that wanted to come along. Uh, the last, latest round that I was doing between, uh, you know, just before the, the um, third reading, unfortunately I had to cut that off because I got tied up in, in Christchurch. But the one hui that I was able to have, which actually happened to be in Christchurch the night before the earthquake, was very, yeah, exactly, was very positive. That once the people understand and um, hear all sides of the story, then they um, are able to come to an informed decision. And I think that is a pity that people didn't avail themselves or that um, in some instances that, um, they were not, not able to attend hui and hear for themselves both sides. Now, you were part of a group of Māori politicians who were standing on the steps as the hikoi came in last week. I was part of the media crew, and as we, as the hikoi was moving through town, it was wahanu, so it was silent. Now, that's the first time I've ever experienced anything like that. How did it feel for you to be on the other side receiving that? It, it was sad. It was really um, regrettable for me, again, that people... Um, felt so strongly that they had to do that. I'm, I really support their right to do that. I think it is fantastic that if they feel that way that they make sure that their opinion is heard, whether it's silently like in that way or as a noisy protest. But it was very moving uh, and to know that people felt that strongly. And I hope that now they will listen to all sides of the story and um, be able to understand why we're doing why we've done what we've done. And it is not only about keeping the promise, but it is about the fact that we have moved things a lot further forward. Not as far as some people want, but we have moved a lot further forward. Kia ora, Rahui Kātene, te Taitonga MP for the Māori Party. After this broadcast, you can head to our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika, that's T-E-A-H-I-K-A-A, to listen to today's show or delve into the archive. And to get our weekly updates, click on our Facebook page logo. It's on the webpage. Or you can join our weekly mailing list. More details once again on radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika. Speed, pure, meth, crystal meth, crank and P are just some of the names used to describe the drug methamphetamine. It's been described as the evil drug because it's often been associated with extreme acts of violence. Communities have taken different approaches to dealing with the problem. Murupara, for instance, made a very public stand a few years ago when it announced it was taking the P out of 
Murupara. Only recently, though, a number of households in the town were part of a nationwide police sting. Ngāti Kahununuki Wairarapa are looking at the problem in another way. They've enlisted the help of former P users, now drug counsellors, Dennis O'Reilly and Mane Hapata. Next week we'll hear from Dennis. This week, here's Mane's story. Uh, kia ora tātou. Um, ko pō, ko pukukautuku me te horo nga maunga, ko runanga te roto, ko te arawa te wharipune, ko pō ānani te wharikai, ko nati mahuike, ko hinihau nga hapu, nati kahanuni te iwi, ko rani ili te ahiko te tangata, uh, ko mani hapata Adams. Um, kia ora, kia ora Mani Motera. So Mani, if we could explain um, what the purpose, what this hui that we've just, that's just finished, what was it all about? Firstly, we got invited to um, come to talk to the Wairapa whanau, uh, Rangitane. I suppose following on from just before Christmas, we did a Ngāti, approach Ngāti Ka Nuni Iwi in, in, in Hiratonga, Ahuriri, uh, to compile a strategy, a methamphetamine strategy together, and therefore that role we had members of uh, Rangitane down there at that time, so they invited us down to speak to um, Rangitane people on this cope up or the or the methamphetamine. Uh, so that's where it all started and why we're here. So then I'll get straight to probably a question that's got a lot of answers to it. How do we get rid of the meth problem? Um, well, that's a good question, and um, it, it's 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 going to be every individual's commitment towards um, a better future for themselves and their family and their wives and and you know the whole their hapu the iwi. Um, we, myself and my colleagues, work particularly within the uh, gang arena. Uh, with the hard to reach um, youth, in particular about this nanara, um, we work on the basis of that we are not police officers. We're not um, uh, we're not dictators to tell them to do this and not and not, and not do that. We're about supporting our phone that are users and encouraging them and persuading them to to. Um, uh, change change their behaviours and their choices. And so, with when you're talking about a strategy, I mean we've just had a bit of a PowerPoint presentation by um, by Dennis O'Reilly, which is your your person that you're working very closely with on this um, particular kaupapa. It's not an easy question. It's not an easy answer, really. There's a lot of work and a lot of groundwork that needs to be done, like you're involved with. Yes. Yes, it definitely is a hard uh, area of the arena to work in. But like you say, we're, we're, we're very passionate and um, um, about uh, educating our whanau and um, giving them options and choices to, to, uh, replace, to replace with the, the choice that they've chosen, which is nine times out of ten not very good. So we basically wait till they sort of hit the bottom of their choice and then we get in there and we offer them other choices, whether that be diving, fishing, go back to school, um, running programs, um, 
uh, that's pretty much our strategy is just um, giving them other options rather than just sitting at home smoking pee and um, um, destroying themselves and their family and whoever's around them. So it's about offering choices, different choices, and then reconnecting them to their families or their whakapapa or their marae or, or those things that's sentimental to them. So we like to just find out about more about them and then encourage them to go back to that way. It's their choice. They'll, they can take it or not, um, but we're not the man with the whip. Um, we really understand where they're coming from. We've been there before ourselves. We've been to the bottom. We've seen all the, the bad effects that this nānara does to our people. And uh, we've just had enough of it. So, Mani, what, what makes you qualified to call it all about this? Um, it's a good question, and um, I'm qualified to talk about this because it's probably about my only qualifier I got, <laughs> funny enough. Mm-hmm. But I'm qualified to talk about it because I've been there, you know, like I stated in the presentation, I've used it for many years before. I'm eight years free of it now. Um, I used it for six, seven years before that. Um, it destroyed, you know, myself, destroyed my relationships, it, was, it destroyed my families, um, and, and it pretty much destroyed everyone that was around me. So um, I've seen it, I've seen uh, the bad effects it has on our, our, our people, because I've used it and gone through it and hit the bottom and and seen people you know seen it i think i you know i've got the ability to understand people that are on it and uh, and to assist them to um to have a better future for themselves and their family. So, Mani, um, in, in a previous life, you were steeped in gang culture and gang gang lifestyle. Very Can you much. tell us tell us more about that? Yeah, very much. Um, I don't regret it. It's um, I was born into it, um, and, and I'm still a, a, a. I am the president of the Hawke's Bay, local Hawke's Bay chapter in Napier. There. Can you tell us which gang? Uh, the Black Power. Um, and yes, I, I, I've had an upbringing, and, and, and it's been my own choices. You know, it hasn't. My, I'm sure my mum and dad wanted me to be the bloody, uh, you know, go to church and all this sort of stuff. And when I was younger, I did all of that. But I'm afraid it wasn't my choice. It was their choice and not mine. So I became a rebel and uh, rebellious against the system, and just bloody uh, um, ran around with my head cut off until. Um, I'm not too sure. I suppose when you, it is true when you get older, you get more mature. And now that I'm a father, well, I've been a father for a while, but now that I'm a grandfather, um, I really, it's really hit home that I, I've got to, I have to pay back my actions. And this is, this is the way I feel I can give back to my people and the community is, is getting out there and educating and supporting um, my family Anyone's family, as a matter of fact, um, whether it be Māori, Pākehā, um, any any race, um, we're there to, to help anyone. How can you be here today and promote such a positive thing to lead a meth-free lifestyle and still be part of Black Power? I, I, I don't see, personally, I don't see uh, that being anything in the way of doing what I'm doing today. Um, I know that 
I have got brotherhood out there that um, that do do manufacture and do consume it, but we ain't going to save everyone. Um, I encourage my brothers at National Hui, at Regional Hui, that hey, let's make better choices. Um, it's it's a big ship slowly moving and turning. Um, there's a light at the end of the tunnel now, more than ever. Um, um, I'm also um, a chairman of my marae, and I'm also a director of the PHO. I'm also on the iwi board. I'm also on the, um, the Taifino Head of Tonga board. So, so you know, my I may ha- may have had a bad history in the day, early days, but I'm making up for it. Kapai, <laughs> kapai. The drugs that I associate with some of my whanau who have been involved with gangs in the past would just be, you know, getting pissed on the weekend and getting stoned with cannabis. Nowadays, meth in particular, it's a it's such a dangerous drug. Oh, very much so. It's called, it's the it's the devil's drug. We call it. Why do you call it the devil's drug? Well, it brings the devil out of you. Uh, um, uh, the worstest behaviours will come out of you. Um, the worstest attitude will come out of you. Uh, Whereas that, cannabis may have been a bit more mellow and feel good. It's a, exactly, uh, and I'm not encouraging that either. You know, um, I must say, you know, uh, but if it is a deterrent to pee, and they use that to sort of uh, wean themselves. Um, it, it may, it may, it may be a, some kind of a medicine to help them get off, and uh, and therefore I, therefore I will total with that, and only on those, only on those reasons. Uh, if I don't with the marijuana, I, I definitely don't total young people, 14, 30, 90 years of age, under. I definitely don't I encourage them to use it at that age because their minds are not mature enough to really handle that stuff. Is it more accessible to our young kids, though, in saying that? The pee? Yeah. Is pee meth? Or are they different? No, they're the same. Pee, uh, meth, pee is methamphetamine. And um, we, we, we've been using pee for the last few years and now we've changed it just to, to really make it clear that it's methamphetamine. Um, I'm, to tell you the truth, I really see methamphetamine being used by children. There's so many stories I see and hear, uh, um, I hear, but I've never seen it myself. Um, you know, kids using it. I'll tell you the truth. I've been on the streets for a long time now, and I don't really see that. I do see the middle age, the 25s up um, users. So there seems seems to be a gap for, you know, uh, age gap for 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 usage of this. Because stuff. does a P user have a certain look, or is there no look to a typical P user? There's is it a, through? There's definitely. A, um, I can spot a methamphetamine user from a mile away. If someone come in front of me, I could tell straight away who he is and, and, and what he's doing, um, just by the way he presents himself, the grinding of the teeth, the eye, the eyes bloody, you know, wide open, the 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 corridor, he did you know, fast corridor. Um, all those are all signs of usage, and um, you can pretty much pick them out. Kia ora, mane hapata. At our website, radioNZ.co.nz forward slash tahika, there are a number of links you can hit if you need more information about this issue. I'm Mariah Rakraku. And I'm Justin Murray, and this is Te Ahika. 
Our fascination with the ukulele isn't ending anytime soon. Helped along with the Kōrero Justin did a few weeks back with Mana Maole, a visiting ukulele crew from Hawaii. What kind of ukulele have you got? Uh, I've got actually Kekoa's ukulele. Um, he's the falsetto singer who's with us uh, on the trip. Uh, it's uh, the name, the brand is the Kala, and uh, it's a six-string ukulele. The second and the fourth strings are doubled, so it has a thicker sound. That one's doubled. So it has a thicker sound. How long have you been playing for, John? Well, um, since I was a kid, since I was young, yeah. Um, I actually don't play ukulele that much. Um, as much as I did when I was younger. My first instrument that I learned was ukulele back when I was like six or seven years old. <coughs> and, uh, you know, moved up to guitar after that and uh, always have an ukulele at home, though, to play. And it's so much easier to carry around and to play, yeah? Thanks, John. I'll let you get to your lesson and I'll just quiet. At little different levels of playing, we're going to start off with something really simple. And we're going to learn... Well, I'm going to start off by introducing myself. My name is Wayne Enos, and I'm from Hawaii, from the island of Oahu, from the Ahupua'a of Haula. And uh, I've been playing the ukulele now for, well, I don't want to say home what, but I've been playing since I was eight years old. So, how, how long have you been playing? Three years, eight years. One year. How old are you? Well, I started when I was eight in a little community group. It was just us kids in the group, in, in the neighborhood. Couples, couple kids had ukuleles, and this one kid, his name was Dwayne Manipon, used to teach us all these different songs. So, and um, helping me today, will be my good good friend John Cruz here everybody he's gonna he's gonna introduce himself and tell him tell everybody a little bit about himself too I am okay uh, yes I've been playing ukulele since I was probably same about saying eight seven years old or so um, I've just been enjoying the instrument forever because it's such a small and portable instrument simple to play and um, lots of enjoyment from it. And so I'm going to return you back to our master. Okay. Wow. And also, we're going to be sitting here. This instrument is originated in Hawaii. I mean, it's it's actually a European-style instrument, but there was no ukuleles before um, when the guitars and these other types of instruments were introduced to Hawaii. Um, Couple of local guys looked at it and they wanted it a little smaller, a little more compact, and they actually created this instrument in Hawaii. And since then, it's grown from these small little soprano sizes and to tenors, there's baritones, there's even a bass lele. They even have now guitar leles. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
guitars. Six, six strings. Six strings. Yeah. Six strings. It's a tune. Yeah, it's tuned a little different, but it's basically all the same. It's tuned so you can still make a C a C, you know. The, the name ukulele, actually, in the Maori language, translates to kuturere. Does anybody know what kutus are? Hey, hey yeah. Kutus, eh? Nits, nits, nits. Who's got nits? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, so that literally, or jumping, jumping fleas is what it, mean, it literally means. And uh, most people speculate on why it was called the ukulele. Some say it is the first ever, um, like the original guy who, who really played it really well. His fingers would move so fast, his fingers look like jumping fleas. So they call it the ukulele. And some say he was the guy who was good at it was really short, like a flea. He's like a short guy. And he's really athletic. He was known for his, his athleticism first, but he was really good on a ukulele and became famous that way. And since then, it stuck to, to the word. Now, the ukulele itself has certain parts to it, yeah? So... Why don't you just start off by familiarizing with some of the parts. The, it's, the ukulele is shaped like a human body. Where there's a, a head, a neck, a body, the shape, yeah? Um, in Hawaii, we would say this would be the po'o. Po'o is so the head. Po'o at the top of the ukulele. Yeah. And then these parts here would be the key. Because that's what the, the foreigners call it, the key. So the Hawaiians, they sound like a good Hawaiian word to them, yeah? <laughs> K-I. And then this section here would be the A-I, which is the neck area. And then this whole area would be the Kino, Kino. which is the body. And on the front side would be Alo. And the mua. Excellent. Yeah, mua. the front. Oh, kua, kua, kua. Kalamai. Kua, mua. Here you go. Um, my ukulele is actually electrified, so I can plug it in and play it with the rest of the instruments on any band, and this thing performs really well. Um... When you're holding the ukulele, is anyone left-handed? So, but I play a guitar. Oh, okay, normal. Okay, okay, you play normal. So that's good for me. That's good. But sometimes you have to retune the whole ukulele, or some people just play it upside down. That way, you can grab any ukulele from anyone and play it. But some left-handers. They get picky and they, they retune it for themselves. Um, yeah, Sina, everyone is really different in their styles. You're left-handed. You sure? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. If I play left-handed, I'm like a beginner. I'm like, I cannot play it on my left hand. But uh, we're going to start by 
making a simple chord. The chord is C. Okay, um, everybody hold up their hand. Okay, your left hand, your left hand. So in your left hand, you have your first finger, and then you have your sec the second finger, third finger. Or you could say your index, your middle, or your ring, yeah? And then on the ukulele, we have these sections here. These are called the frets. Um, if you use your ring finger, is the proper finger to use for this chord. You bring your ring finger and you put it on the first string, which is on the bottom. That's the first string. The second string, third string, fourth string on the top. To do the traditional Hawaiian vamp, you go D7, G7, C. Sound familiar? D7, G7, C. From the C, it's real simple, right? Just add that. Yeah. It's a vamp. We call it a vamp. Just a little. A little place to hang while you know in between in between uh, verses you do you vamp on the uh, on those three chords or um, in, the, in the intro to a song during an intro you know an introduction to a song you could be introduced hey how you doing ladies and gentlemen blah, 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 blah. this next song is gonna be danced by so and so and blah blah blah, blah. Yeah. you know this is just a vamp um, so that's a that's a real classic Hawaiian vamp, yeah. Wayne, you know, we've just had a session here as part of Malamoli. You, you, you taught um, the ukulele to a couple of people that came mm -hmm. here tonight, uh, today. Uh, do you do that often? Do you, do you give back to the community by teaching music or the ukulele in particular? Um, when, I, when we get back, I'm going to actually start doing after-school music classes at Halaukumana. Or I, I'm, they may be designating me to different charter schools after-school programs to teach uh, music to the kids. So it's like, I think it's going to be like Tuesdays and Thursdays. You saw what happened today and all that. You're a natural. Oh, yeah. It's fantastic. Oh, yeah. I wish I wasn't working. Wayne, my final question, I asked uh, John this question too. What is the biggest uh, misconception that the outside world, like outside of Hawaii have about Hawaiian music? Like, what's some stereotypes that, that are just wrong? Since reggae has become so popular, especially with island people, we love that feel that is fits right into the vibe, yeah? And since that's been... It got really popular, like, late 80s, early 90s, and it was called Jawaiian music. Jawaiian? Yeah, they, they dubbed it Jawaiian and a lot of musicians kind of didn't like that because they, we never thought we was playing Jawaiian music. We, we liked reggae, so we played our style of reggae. It's more like an island reggae. 
more so than you know there's like roots reggae roots reggae there's like ska reggae we play more like island reggae but still more on the reggae side you know? but uh a lot of people just refer to us jawaiian you know me, I don't mind. I don't really mind. But some people, like the rest of my bandmates, they might think that word is uh, not so good. How long have you been learning the ukulele? Uh, ukulele. About 10 minutes. <laughs> Listen, it's just an exaggeration. I've plunked the ukulele for about... Ten minutes. <laughs> nice, nice. Kia ora mana Māori. You heard there from John Cruz and Wayne Enos. Raranga or weaving has an almost therapeutic effect on our next guest, Therese McLeod, and it's given her something to leave for her whānau. Now you were on the course last year? Yeah, yeah, it was a, a Kōrawai course. So that was stage one, I guess, in a three-year journey of completing, I think it's called a Diploma in Visual Arts. I'm not quite sure how this Wānanga structures their qualifications. But So last year we concentrated on making a Kōrawai, and this is kind of the second phase in that journey, which is a whole year of flax weaving. So this is a match we did this weekend. We dyed it. Yeah, I'm pretty frustrated. It's a bit crooked. I see all the errors in a day instead of the... Stop it. It's lovely. And I can see all the other ladies have got placemats as well. Yeah, yeah. This is an interesting group. So it's slightly different from um, last year where it was a very small nohal. So it's now the seniors and us over the whole weekend. So it's a lot of people. And this sort of group come from the Wairarapa. Um, But mostly local people from Levin and the Kapiti Coast. So the interesting thing about why I got on this course is because I was graduating, a Marae graduation from Victoria last year, and I, needed, I wanted a kōrawai. didn't have a kōrawai in my immediate family. So um, I came here and thought, oh, well, I can knock one up in time for grad, you know, a few months. <laughs> so I learned quite quickly that you, you can't necessarily do that. So that's why I got hooked into this place. And a, and a worry, because I was quite worried about my... My family's lack of um, involvement in the Māori arts and, and that knowledge being lost. So I wanted to sort of deal to that and come and learn stuff so I could pass it on to my younger cousins. Had you been brought up around this? A little bit, but we moved a lot and we, and we went away from home to the cities and stuff, so that knowledge got fragmented and it just disappeared, really. So, yeah, coming to that realisation, oh, have we got a family kōrawai? Well, not, well, we have, but it's in museums, and so I wanted one that we could have easy access to. So that's why I came here. And how did you get on with your kōrawai making? Oh, awesome. Yeah, a few tantrums along the way. It's quite frustrating learning all these techniques. They're very detailed and fiddly and time-consuming, but the end is um, so much, so worth it. And on that journey, you learn stuff about your characteristics that you, you know, have to learn to, you know rise above like impatience is one of mine I'm so not patient with anything so yeah it teaches you that you know some of the ugly things about my personality and characteristics I developed and controlled through this process so you live in Wellington I'm talking with Therese McLeod so have you noticed where all the harakeke 
um, stashes are around Wellington? You do, you get a sharp eye for Harakiki and um, when we were doing Kurawai for Dead Manu. So you'd see them on the road where previously you'd just drive past them and, you know, wouldn't think anything. Now I get excited about seeing <laughs> roadkill <laughs> and bushes and you start learning to sort of, you know, know what they are and what they can do and that sort of stuff. So yeah, no, this is a wonderful place. You know, it attracts so many interesting people, industrious people. You know, people that can do stuff with like things you never would think about. Like, I don't know if you met Sam across the way. Yeah, people like that, and everyone here's really onto it. Very resourceful people. Very industrious. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's just head down. Yeah, we're a little bit on the flat now. Yeah, it's a long weekend, and you learn so much. And it's you know by this time of the day, you're sort of a bit. Full on. My eyes pointing to a badge, I've got it. So well, it's a piece of power with little poise sewn into it. Beautiful. And the power is like in the shape of a heart. Yeah. Oh my god, that is so lovely. Got it at Tarao Tarokura. <laughs> Kia ora, Therese McLeod, North Tiatiawa. And we'll hear from Tracy Huxford, her tutor, and the rest of the Raranga Fano based at the Levin Kokiri Centre in a later programme. Aneira and Nick Roscrude met the Fakatoki at the Inewiki. Kua ura te ao te kohai. The meaning, the literal meaning, is the kindling of the kohai blazes. We think of this at around August, September, when this tree, the kohai, comes into flower. And if you live in this region, the Manautu Darangi Tikei, then the kohai is the primary tree that you'll see as you go up towards Taihapi and all of that. But for us living here, this is a symbol of um, the spring, of the new kai, the kina. Uh, that's the time to go out and get kina. That's the time to start thinking about your new jobs after the winter and that sort of thing. So the kohai is a very important tohu for us. So that's the hakatoki. And, and certainly for for this part of the country, it's, it's a really relevant hakatoki. That's us for this week's broadcast. Next week, we revisit the Kotafano of Omayo. Remember them? They train pig dogs for the bush while they also restore and bind books. And I'm in Palmerston North with Zusha Farimate, whose doctoral thesis looks at the nutritional value of Taiwa Māori potatoes. We'll be back again this time next week. Now, you can always contact us at teahika at radioNZ.co.nz to give us a heads up on anything happening in your community.